go ahead and, and take a seat, and we will open up God's Word together in just a moment. It's great to see all of you. Um, good morning. My name is Simon, and it really is good to see all of you here uh, today. This morning, we're going to be continuing our, our series exploring the gospel according to Matthew. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to there, Matthew chapter 8, uh, and we will read from there in just a moment. While you're doing that, let me ask you a question. What is the worst storm that you have ever been in? What's the, the, the most vicious, the, the most violent storm that you have ever experienced before? But when I think about this question for myself, there's a particular memory that comes straight to mind, uh, which happened about 18 years ago. And I was 11 at the time, and it was the first time that me and my family went to North America. And we went to Florida uh, because, you know, we'd heard, we'd heard that there was Disney World in Florida. Um, the thing that we didn't hear, and certainly I wasn't aware, I don't know if my parents were aware, but Florida occasionally has some mild storms, uh, to put it as a bit of an understatement. And so when we arrived, um, we were kind of in the middle of hurricane season. And so after a week of being there, there was one day where we just couldn't go to the park. And, th and this day really sticks out in memory. Because I remember that we, we first had to kind of, we were staying inside because it was raining, it was pouring down with rain, it was getting windier. And then uh, there were some local kind of authorities driving around saying, hey, no, you need to go to a shelter. So then we went to a local community shelter. And we spent a couple of hours there. And then they came along and said, this is no longer safe. Uh, it's getting worse. Now you guys need to go to the local high school. And we're from out of town. We had no, no idea how to get there. Eventually we get there. It took us about an hour to drive there. And I remember getting out of the car and just sprinting into the school because of how much rain was, was going down. Unfortunately, we only had to stay there for, for the day. And so I think later on that night, we were able to go back home and the, and the storm had kind of passed and, and we were safe. But I remember the days following, the days following, we were driving around and we saw trees that had been blown over, we saw signs that had been blown over, there was debris everywhere, and we had conversations with people. And I remember this particular couple were speaking and they said that they had stayed at home during the storm and they could hear the trees falling down outside around their house. And they were just praying, Lord, please don't let one of these trees fall onto our house um, and fortunately, praise God, none of them did. But I think that's our reaction to storms, just like that couple. All we can do is hunker down and, and, and get through it. Uh, we can't fight a storm. You don't go on the offensive when a storm happens. You go on the defensive. You go on the defense. You, you hole up, you settle in, and you just wait it out. And this morning, we're looking at another storm that happened, a storm that is described in the Bible, a storm that Jesus and his disciples were caught in. And this isn't just a, you know, a mild storm, a few leaves swirling around in the wind. This is a storm that is bad enough to think that 
uh, make people think that their time has come, that they're not going to get out of it alive. This is it. And what makes it even worse is that in this storm, the disciples and Jesus are in a boat, in the sea, in a storm. The worst place that you want to be in a storm. They don't have the option of, of hunkering down in a safe place just to wait it out. They don't have the option of just waiting for it to pass. Their boat is filling up with water. And they're being thrown back and forth across the waves. They can't swim to land. Uh, they can't control the boat. And they definitely can't control the storm. So what exactly is going to happen? They're all out of options. Is this it? Is this where the journey of Peter and James and John and Andrew finishes? Is this where Jesus' ministry ends? He's lost at sea. This is how Matthew records the story. As Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Lord Jesus, um, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what you are trying to teach us through your word, and to have the receptivity to, to accept it, to put it into practice, to not be like someone who looks at themselves in the mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets, but to remember your teachings and to put them into practice this week, this coming week. Pray these things in your name. Amen. If we want to know what Matthew is trying to teach us in this passage, if we want to know what the, the, the focus is, Helpfully, we can look at the disciples' own words, their words that end this passage. There's a particular question that they have. What, what's the question that they have? You can feel free to shout it out. What was that, sorry? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this in the boat with us? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? We thought we knew who he was. Now we're not so sure. That's the question that is central to this story. Who is Jesus? And, and really, this question is the one that the whole of Matthew's gospel is trying to answer. And each part of the gospel kind of adds to our picture of who Jesus is. Even the first line of Matthew's gospel answers this question from one perspective. This is about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. But the answer to this question, who is this guy, is multi-layered. 
Uh, each part of the gospel fills up, enriches, expands our view of who Jesus is. Each part adds a new chapter to the book of who Jesus is. Each part adds a new, a new facet, a new dimension to the portrait of Jesus. Kind of like if you take a, a picture of someone from loads of different angles, and, and then you get an idea of, okay, this is how they look from the side, okay, and this is how they look from the front, and this is how they look from the back, you get a well-rounded, complete picture of who this person is. So, as we've been going through the first eight chapters of Matthew's Gospel, we've seen some of the answers to this question so far. So, the first answer we find is that Jesus is a king. The word Christ or Messiah that comes up again and again throughout Matthew's Gospel points to this. Uh, it means anointed one. And kings were one of those key peoples that, that were anointed with oil in the ancient world. Just like you read about King David. Before he became king, the, the prophet Samuel came along and he anointed him with oil to demonstrate that he was king. Uh, even in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, we see, we see this kind of emphasis. The, the wise men come to visit Jesus and they say, to Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is why Herod had such a, such a big problem with Jesus, and he was trying to seek him out, trying to kill him, trying to get rid of him, is because he was afraid that Jesus was going to take over his kingship, because Jesus is king. Patrick Schreiner, who's a New Testament scholar, says that when Matthew draws Jesus, the most noticeable feature is the crown on his head. So one answer to the question, who is this guy, is that this Jesus is a king. Another answer that we've seen so far is that Jesus is a teacher. And if you ask someone on the street, who is Jesus, this would probably be one of the most common answers that you would get. A lot of people would say that he's a teacher, he's a good teacher, and it's true, uh, especially in chapters 5 to 7 that we've spent a long time kind of going through, that the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, we see Jesus as a wise teacher. We see some of these insightful and penetrating remarks that he has, observations about the world, observations about who he is and what he's come to do, and about us, about humans, uh, and what humans are like. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Do to others what you would like them to do to you. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. And then there are the parables and the stories that Jesus tells, like the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain comes and the floods hit into the house on the rock and it stands firm. And the rain comes and the flood hits into the house on the sand and it falls flat. And Jesus says, you who listen to my words and put them into practice, you're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And you who listen to my words and don't put them into practice, 
You're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Each of these, these stories and these teachings and these proverbs demonstrate that Jesus is a teacher. A third answer that we see to the question, who is Jesus, is that he's also a healer. And this has been the focus so far of chapter 8 in Matthew. The, the parts that we've been looking at over these, these past few weeks. Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount, and then he goes into action. He's not just a man of words, he's a man of action. Comes down from the mountain after preaching. And then he begins healing the sick and the needy. We see him heal a man with a skin disease a paralytic, and he even heals a mother-in-law by the grace of God at work. He performs these incredible miracles. And so when we get to the calming of the storm and we hear the disciples say, what kind of man is this? Well, who did you think he was? right? (laughs) Have you not been paying attention to everything that you've seen and and heard? Have you not seen and experienced these miracles? He's even healed your own family. It was Peter, his disciples, mother-in-law that was healed. You guys of all people should know that Jesus is not just some regular, some normal guy. But what actually happens on that boat, in the sea, in that storm, seems to mark a new stage in Jesus' ministry. Something new is happening. Something is being revealed more clearly than it has been before. Jesus' healings up to this moment have been incredible. And we also see prophets in the Old Testament enabled by God to perform miracles. We see the prophets of the Old Testament do mind-blowing things. Elisha cools down fire from heaven. Uh, Elijah, uh, or Elijah cools down fire from heaven, I think. Elisha raises the dead. Uh, People are are healed. We see that the, the plagues in Egypt happen. But controlling the sea, this vast body of water, millions of gallons of water, controlling a a dark storm that's rolled in with the wind blowing and rain pounding down. We don't see anyone in the Old Testament do something like this. The closest that anyone gets is Moses at the Red Sea. Uh, When the Lord says to Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. But then it goes on to say, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. The Lord drove the sea back. So really, it wasn't Moses who controlled the sea. And this is true of all of the miracles, even when it doesn't specifically say it. God is the one at work behind all of this. Psalm 106 verse 9 emphasizes it even 
more clearly what happens at the Red Sea. God rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. So what's missing from Matthew's story? What's missing from the passage that we read? It never says, and Jesus stood up, and he rebuked the sea, and the Lord stopped the storm. It doesn't say, and Jesus stood up, and the Lord rebuked the storm. No, instead, Jesus speaks, and it happens. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of any other part of Scripture? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks and it happens. Jesus calms the storm with a word from his mouth. There's no delay. There's no slow dwindling of the, of the waves and the, the wind. One second there's waves crashing about, and the next second the sea is like glass. Smooth as glass. What kind of man is this? The answer is that he's not just a man. Have you noticed how that sometimes someone can say just a word or a phrase, and you immediately recognize what they're referencing? And so if I say something like, <clears throat> my precious... You're welcome. That's now recorded for all eternity. Um, <laughs> if I say that, many of you will recognize, ah, that's Gollum. That's, that's Lord of the Rings. Uh, those of you that are more familiar with history, if I say, we shall never surrender, you'll think of Winston Churchill's speech in World War II. If I say, Four score and seven years ago. You'll remember Abraham Lincoln's speech, the, the Gettysburg Address. And in the same way, Jesus' disciples are Jewish. There are certain things that when they see them and when they hear them, there are alarm bells going off in their head. They know the Old Testament. They've grown up hearing Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms. And when they see Jesus calm the storm with a word, alarm bells start going off in their head because there is only one thing that that can mean. There's only one person that controls the sea, and that's God Himself. Jesus is God Himself, Emmanuel, God with us. This is one of the defining beliefs of the Christian faith. The Nicene Creed, which is one of the earliest summary statements of the Christian faith that was put together, which Christians throughout all generations have, have read and affirmed together, says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. The guy in the boat with the disciples isn't a regular guy. He's the one who made the wind and the waves, the one through whom all things were created. He is the eternal creator of the universe, born as a Middle Eastern man. The infinite become finite. So what difference does this make for us? If Jesus is a king, then we should obey him because he has authority. If Jesus is a teacher, then we should listen to him because he has wise things to say. If Jesus is a healer, then we should seek out his help because he cares for us and he loves us. If Jesus is truly God, what does that mean? And I think there are a couple of answers to that question, at least. First, in verse 26, after the disciples wake Jesus up, he says to them, why are you so afraid, you of little faith? Which sounds like a silly question. Well, why do you think we're afraid, Jesus? Look around you. See what's, what's going on. This is in the middle of the storm that they're having this conversation. They're probably shouting back and forth. Jesus is like, why are you afraid? Well, look, <laughs> that's why we're afraid. Why do you think, Jesus? You know, we're experienced fishermen. We've grown up on this lake day in, day out. We know when things are bad, and right now, this is bad. You're just a carpenter. You're just a landlubber. You, you just work with wood. You haven't been on the sea like we have. This is bad. I remember um, being in the, the room twice when my wife is given birth, and, and both times this has happened, especially the first time when I was more nervous. But I remember I would be looking keenly at the doctors and the nurses and their expressions and what they were doing. And the reason for that is because I was pretty nervous. And seeing my wife go through what she was going through uh, made me scared for her. And so I was looking at the doctors and the nurses uh, because they're the ones who do this day in, day out. If I look at them and they look calm, I'm calm. If I look at them and they say, oh, no, that, that's not supposed to happen, then I'm probably going to start freaking out myself. <laughs> because if they have seen all these things and they start freaking out, then, uh, then things are probably pretty bad, and I should be nervous. That's what happens with the disciples. They're experienced fishermen. Uh, they have seen storms happen on the lake before. It's probably been in storms on the lake before. And so if they're freaking out, it means things are seriously wrong. But if Jesus is truly God, 
then he's the one who made the wind and the sea. Then his question, why are you afraid, isn't a silly question. Then if Jesus is truly God, we actually don't need to be and shouldn't be afraid. Some of you are afraid of a pandemic that's taken over the world and killed millions. Some of you are afraid of of a government taking over your rights and your freedoms. Some of you are afraid of your, your children. Not afraid of your children. Afraid for your children, probably. If you're afraid of your children, come speak to me afterwards. <laughs> I will pray for you. Some of you are afraid for your children. Their safety, because you can't control the environment that they're in. Some of you are afraid about work, about losing your job, about how you're going to make ends meet. And maybe we try to convince ourselves well, Simon, I'm not afraid, <laughs> and I do the same. I'm not afraid. I'm worried. I'm not afraid, though. That's a, that's a strong word. And in one sense, all of these are legitimate. They're all legitimate concerns. Pandemics have arisen and killed hundreds of millions throughout history. Governments, century after century, have oppressed and abused their people. Children have accidents, and evil people live in this world. We can't constantly control their environment. We know that we can be laid off, and there may be times where we do struggle financially. All of these are legitimate concerns, and we should be afraid. Unless. Unless. That guy who is fast asleep in the boat with us is more than meets the eye. Unless he is more than a good king, unless he he is more than a good teacher, unless he's more than a healing prophet, unless he's God with us, unless he's the one who made everything that we can see and cannot see, unless he's the one who made gorillas and galaxies, manatees and the moon, the stingrays and the stars, unless he made the smallest atoms and the smallest cells up to the largest stars and the largest galaxies, unless he's the one who guides all of history with his hand. If that is true, if he is truly God with us, Come hell or high water, I do not need to be afraid. This week, we will all be tempted to be afraid. Whether it's because we receive news saying our cancer is back, whether it's because we're having struggles in our marriage, whether it's because of everything that we see going on on the news and around the world. We will be tempted to be afraid. But the most important question for us to ask isn't, is there a storm? The most important question for us to ask is, am I in the boat with Jesus? Because if I'm in the boat with Jesus, 
everything is going to be okay. It doesn't mean it will be easy. Jesus promises his followers, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. You will have suffering in this world. All of Scripture is very realistic about the pain and suffering that we will experience this side of death. And it doesn't mean that we'll always have an answer. Couldn't Jesus have just stopped the storm from happening in the first place? Why did he wait for the storm to to arise and then stop it? Sometimes we don't have answers to these questions. This passage isn't a promise that Jesus will resolve every issue in our lives. But being in the boat with Jesus is still the safest and the best place to be. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Are you in the boat with Jesus? Because then he will work everything for good. And this brings us to the second response that we should have if Jesus is truly God. What does it mean to be in the boat with him? It means to be his follower, to be his disciple. It means to say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you truly are the Son of God. I believe you are Lord. And I let you be Lord over my life. I will listen to you and obey you. I will turn from my sin, my way of doing things, and I will turn to you and I will follow you and I will listen to you and I will obey you and I'll follow you on the boat. I'll follow you into the storm. It means to give Jesus what is due only to God. To fully give everything over to Him. It means to worship Him. And we don't see his actual disciples do that here. They haven't put the pieces together yet. They're still connecting the dots. They're just kind of completely shocked and stunned at the moment. But they connect the dots later on. There's a similar story that happens in Matthew chapter 14. And we find the disciples go onto a boat. Jesus stays behind on land. Um, He spends some time praying alone. He lets the disciples go on ahead of him uh, in the boat on on the sea. And And another storm raises up. And the wind's kind of blowing against the boat. And the disciples see someone walking on the water in the middle of the night, and they think that it's a ghost, and it turns out it's actually Jesus. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says, Lord, if that's really you, tell me to, to come out on the water. Tell, tell me to come out and walk on the water to you. And Peter starts, and after a short time, he becomes afraid, and he falls into the water. 
he cries out, Lord, save me. Notice the parallels with our passage. Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him and says to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. If Jesus is truly the one who commands the wind and the sea, then he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read this story, it seems unbelievable. And the reason is because According to people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With you, all things are possible. And so I ask that you would give each of us um, reminders and assurances that you are truly God incarnate, God with us. You are worthy of our worship, Lord Jesus. We bow down to you. We praise you. We sing to you. We love you. We follow you. We obey you because you are worth it. You are good and righteous, our good and righteous creator and savior. And we ask that we would not just believe this, that it would actually have an impact on our lives. That actually we would be without fear, that we would follow you without fear because you are God with us. Help us not to be afraid in the coming weeks. Help us not to be afraid in this world that tries to make us afraid. Despite all of our technological advances, Lord, it feels like there's more fear than there ever has been before. Threats of pandemics, natural disasters, nuclear war, they can overwhelm us, and they should overwhelm us, unless, unless you are truly God with us, and you are, Lord. So we praise you, we thank you. May your name be praised. Amen.